Hey, in your program this morning, as Evan mentioned, there's this, uh, this insert that says LifePoint Church Office is moving. I want to let you know about that. I want to let you know, first of all, why we're moving. If you, haven't, if you weren't here to hear that explanation a week or two ago, uh, our, our lease wasn't renewed. <laughs> it creates a little bit of a problem. So uh, it, it expires the end of February. And um, what happened was that we had negotiated a smoking deal on our lease uh, with our with the previous owner of our building, and so during this three year term of our lease, the building sold to a new owner, and he saw what we were paying, and his mouth fell open. Um, but he has uh, he has uh, allowed uh, our neighbor uh, to uh, to lease our space. We didn't have an option, so lease terminated, and so we're out the end of February. So we've been looking hard for a place that uh, we could move to, and um, basically we were kind of striking out. We weren't able to find, you know, four offices with doors that close <laughs> and um, a, a meeting space that in, in included uh, for a reasonable price. And then Pastor Steve was on Craigslist one day, and he saw this house that was for lease as in commercial, zoned commercial um, 2,600 square feet, uh, $405 less than we're paying currently, and um, pretty awesome. Uh, so we are moving um, our, our big push. We have actually a full month to make the total move, but we want to make a big push this next weekend. And uh, the office is over on Pacific Avenue. Uh, it is a totally different space than we're in right now. It's a 1930s home. Um, but it's cool, it's kind of quirky, and it's got a huge living room, full kitchen, dining room, um, two bathrooms up and down, full basement. So we're actually not only going to be able to move our office, but we're also going to be able to stop paying on our storage unit and bring stuff from the storage unit over to the house, which is pretty awesome. So we're saving a chunk of money, and uh, we're excited about it. And, uh, but here's the deal. It has been closed for a little while. There hasn't been anybody in there for a while. Uh, so we are, first of all, looking for a team who would come in on Friday. And Phyllis Pelto is heading up a team uh, on Friday um, to clean. And they're going to do windows and bathrooms and kitchen and all that stuff that needs to get windows. Did I say windows? Um, and, and then the other thing is, that um, the last person, the actual last tenant in this building was a psychic tarot card reader. So at some point, we're going to pray in every stinking room in that house, including that dark, dank basement. And uh, we're going to be in there. We're going to be in there praying. And then this week, we're going to be doing a lot of packing of stuff in our office. If you can help with that, we'd love to know that. And then on, on next Saturday, February 2nd, it's going to be the big push of, of moving. And so if you, uh, if you have a truck that you can even just drive, you don't even have to lift anything necessarily. If you, if you have a truck that, uh, that you're just willing to drive and others can load it, um, that would be great. A van that doesn't have seats in it um, where you can take the seats out. We just, we just need a fleet of vehicles so we can do this inexpensively. And uh, we're going to move on Saturday. And so if you can help with any of that, mark your Connect card that's in your program today, the, the perforated tear-off. If you just drop that in the offering box, uh, or you can email us at info at my, at, not my LPC, info at lpclacy.com. Uh, we would appreciate that. 
so much. So here's one other thing um, very quickly, and I, I've got to move quickly with this. You know that we've been in this campaign called Vision Next. We talked about it last week. It's a capital campaign. Uh, we are hoping that at the end of three years, which will be two years from the end of this March, that we will have been able to acquire a piece of property on which we can build or a building which we can renovate. So we have been looking, we've been watching, uh, and here's, here's what happened just recently. Uh, there was a piece of property that we had been looking at previously that we thought was gone. Uh, it, it had gone under contract. We thought it was sold, um, but it's back on the market. Uh, it's forested land, but it's over four acres of land. We had hoped for five. It's just There's two parcels, actually. They're each just under five acres. And uh, we think that one of those parcels might be the right one for LifePoint. So here's what we're thinking about. The elders talked about it this week. We're praying about this. And um, we're thinking we might make an offer on that property because we have actually had income, as I mentioned last week, in excess of one-third of what you pledged less than a year ago. So in less than a year, we have over a third of what you pledged has already come in, which we're grateful for. It's amazing. Yes, you can applaud. Um, So we feel like we could make a down payment, which would put us into a a six, maybe like a 60-day feasibility study to see if it'll work out, but it'd tie up the property and make it ours for 60 days. And then if, if, if after those 60 days it, it really doesn't work out, we can get out of that with, and get our money back. But um, we cannot say right now, I would be lying if I stood up to you and said, God has spoken, we feel like this is it. Okay? I'm not going to say that. What I'm going to say is we're praying about it, and we would love to hear from you whether you think we ought to move forward. And I know it's very limited, but, if, but uh, it, we just, we'd like this to be a, a group process. And so would you pray? Would you weigh in with us? Let us know what you think, um, because that land isn't going to be there forever. And so we feel like we'd, we'd like to maybe at least tie it up for a while and see if it would work for us. So uh, let us hear from you, though, if you think this is the right time to, to move forward. As I mentioned, we have... I don't remember the number, Greg, 178,000 has come in, and we have that in, in interest-bearing funds right now. So um, anyway, uh, we could move forward on that property. It's, did I say that the, the value of the parcel, each of the parcels, there's two of them right side by side, each of them is about approximately the same size, a little difference, but they're, but they're both priced at less than what you pledged for the three-year period. And, and so um, that would be, that'd be kind of exciting uh, if, if that worked out. So we are, uh, we're looking into that. I want you to know about that. Be aware of that. Pray with us about that. Okay, let me bow in prayer with you, and let's ask God to speak to us this morning. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, come now and be our teacher. Lord, um, the, the things we're talking about today are sensitive things, and they go right to our hearts. And so, Lord, would you speak into our hearts and let it be you, Holy Spirit, that's speaking and not me. And, Lord, would you penetrate our hearts and would you speak into them and would you transform them, would you shape them according to your purpose. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, Lord, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen.
Okay, so we are wrapping up this morning our Pirates series that we've been in this month of January. So let's just briefly review some highlights of of what we've thought about together over these past three weeks. First is, is this, that whenever we talk about God and our money, God and our treasure, God and our stuff, our, our tendency is to want to pull away because we're afraid, right, of what God will want to do with our stuff, with our money. But when we do that, we find that instead of the greater freedom that we expect and the greater freedom that we are pursuing, we instead experience greater bondage. And so the counterintuitive reality is that when we follow God's directives, when we adopt the values of his kingdom with regard to our money, with regard to our possessions, we find greater peace and freedom and purposefulness than we thought possible. You know, it just struck me, if if you're visiting here for the first time today, you're probably going, I knew it. If I go to church, they're going to talk about money. So we know that this is sensitive stuff. And, uh, and so we're trying to approach this, though, from, from God's perspective. Second thing we saw is that God is the owner of everything, right? Do we agree with that? I mean, it's all his. He created it. And when it's all done, everything goes back in the box. It'll still be his. So what you think you own, the illusion of ownership, what you think you own is really just on loan. That's kind of been the, the central tenet of this whole Series, what you think you own is really just on loan. And because he is the owner, our role is to be managers of what he has for a time entrusted to us. And we observe this, that managers ask a different question than owners ask. Managers ask, what would the owner have me do with his treasure? What would the owner have me do with his treasure? so we saw that God wants us to live. We talked about dots. Remember the dots? We talked about the fact that God wants us to live not for the dot, which represented our lifetime, our, our short appearance in the, in, the, in, in the grand scheme of eternity. And the line represented eternity. The dot represented our lifetimes. What we can do on earth to make an impact for eternity. And we, we said that God wants us to live not for the dot, but for the line. Not for time alone, but also for eternity. And then thirdly, that the ways that you and I live in view of eternity reveal our true identities, whether we belong to the world or we belong to God. Whether we're just earth dwellers, people of the world, as Jesus referred to it in the parable we saw last week, or we're people of the light. And then we saw that money is both a tool and a test. It's a tool and a test. Money is a tool, first of all, that God wants us to leverage for eternal purposes. And last week we looked at a parable that Jesus taught about an unscrupulous manager. And out of that he made this comment. He said, make friends for yourself with worldly wealth so that when this life is over, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings, which sounds like the most manipulative kind of, you know, thing in the world. But here's, here's the deal. I heard from one life group who expressed some confusion about this point last week. So allow me to just clarify that ever so briefly. In the parable that we studied, Jesus used a negative example to draw a sharp contrast and to make a positive 
point. He told a, a story of a financial manager who used his money in a somewhat, not just somewhat, unscrupulous manner to secure his professional future, to secure his future employment. Jesus, and he was talking about the people of the world who are shrewd in dealing with their own kind. But Jesus' positive point was this, that we, the people of the light, are to leverage the money that's entrusted to us, not for temporal gain only, but for eternal impact. So that, as the result of the ways that you and I have managed, invested, leveraged, given our treasure here on earth, people will come to faith in Christ. Their sins will be forgiven, they'll receive the gift of eternal life, and they will welcome us into heaven when we arrive. Now, I have no idea what that's going to look like, whether it's going to be pearly gates, Peter standing there, Peter the barista serving espresso at the pearly gates. I don't don't know what that's going to look like. But here's what's going to happen. We're going to see Jesus. And then these people that Jesus was talking about in the parable, in his application of the parable, thunderous applause. Because why? Because as a result of what you gave, the way that you leveraged your money, the way that you invested your treasure in this lifetime, they got to be there. And so they'll say to you, thank you. Thank you for giving to the Lord. Because my life was rescued. And my eternity was secured. Because of your faithfulness because of your obedience. So for the people of the world, Jesus said, in effect, it's about, for them, it's about me. It's about here. It's about now. Because me and here and now is all they've got. And by contrast, for the people of the light, it's about others. And it's about there and then. Because we have eternal life. And so we can live not just for the dot, but for the line. And so we need to wrestle then with questions that sound like this. Who will be there in heaven then? Because of what you're doing now with the treasure that the owner has given you on loan to invest for his purposes. I mentioned I put on a tie yesterday. (laughs) And the occasion was the 50th anniversary of the church where I first started out as a youth pastor in 1978. And so some of those kids that were in my youth group, I was only 22 when I started there, are, some of them look older than me. And some of them have grandchildren, which I don't have. I have a grand dog only. It's kind of a bust. Nice dog, but he's not a, not a child. So anyway, it, what was cool though, was to, was to be there, and I don't say this to promote myself, other than just to say the investments that I made for almost 40 years ago, it was 40 years ago last fall that I started there. I know, I look younger than that. Those investments, a lot of them paid off. I mean, there were some tragedy stories that I heard, because life happens. We live in a broken world, but, but there were several there who were in that youth group. Uh, in whose lives I had the privilege for a very short time to make an investment. 
And it was just cool to have them come up and say, thanks, Jim, for your investment in my life. Thanks for, thanks for being there. Because it, you know, high school, junior high, middle school, transformational time in our lives, right? Transitional time. A lot of decisions being made. It matters. Who will be in heaven because you chose to live not for the dot, but instead you chose, even when it was hard, even when it involved sacrifice, even when it was uncomfortable or inconvenient, you kept, and you kept on choosing to live for the line. And that's what I was so encouraged by last night. Keep on living for the line. It's so easy to get bogged down in the here and now, get bogged down in the dot, and forget life is short. Eternity is forever, and we have now to invest. How loud will be the applause when you enter heaven because of the way you used your treasure here uh, resulted in them being there? Money is a test. It's a tool, but it's also a test. And the test is the test of ownership. It's the test of the true condition of our hearts. It's the test of our trustworthiness with, with what Jesus referred to as real riches. So when it comes down to it, this whole area of our of, of discipleship for us is really about love and it's really about trust. Do we really believe, do we really, really believe that God loves us? And do we really, truly love him in return? Do we really believe that he's trustworthy so that we can trust him with our lives? Are we willing to express our love to him by trusting him to fulfill his promises to us and by stepping into places of courageous obedience where we demonstrate dependence on him? Do we trust him with our money? Do we trust him with our future? Do we trust him with our financial future? Do we trust him with our children's financial futures? So we've been talking about treasure, money and stuff, money and possessions, And I want to pick up where we left off last week, which was with Jesus saying, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, so so don't misunderstand. God's not poor. We're not here this month in this series or at any time saying, poor God, he needs so much money. God ultimately doesn't need our money, nor does he want your money or your stuff. Have you looked at your stuff lately? No matter how great it is, it's not that great. See, what God wants is your heart because your heart influences everything else in your life. But here's what God knows about you and me, that our hearts will always, always, always pursue what they treasure. Always. Your heart will always pursue what it treasures. Our hearts will always pursue that which we value the most. If it's money, then our hearts will pursue money. If it's leisure and recreation, that's what we're going to be all about. If it's a person or a relationship, they will have your heart. If it's your career, that's what you'll be all about. If you want to know where someone's heart is, follow the treasure trail. You'll find it every time. In fact, if you really want to know what someone loves or cherishes or values or treasures, look at their checkbook. Of course, nobody uses those anymore. So so look at their credit card statement, if if they'll allow you. Probably won't. 
But look at where a person spends most of their money, where they spend most of their time. Look at what occupies most of their mental space, and you'll find what they treasure most. You'll find where their heart is. Check out this clip. Jack Sparrow's compass didn't point to true north, so some people thought it was broken. And yet that compass may have been the most valuable compass in all the world because it pointed, it pointed to the heart's true north. Regardless of who was holding the compass, it always, always, always pointed to what that person wanted most in the world. It revealed what they treasured. So let me ask you today, each of us needs to ask ourselves, which way lies my heart's true north? Which way lies my heart's true north? What are the truest and deepest desires of my heart? Because the truth is, the truth we must not miss is the, that the truth that we must understand is this, that where you treasure be, there be ye heart. Ark. Now here's what many of us do. We say, well, the Bible's pretty clear about what God wants for me and for my finances. I get that. I'm in general agreement. What I need to do right now is to get my act together financially. It's not really practical right now for me to give. And I think God understands that. So I'm going to get organized. And then when it's practical, that's when I'll be ready to involve God in my finances. When it's practical. But you know what? Because you're just in general agreement, because you're not really willing at that point to surrender your life to God. You're not ready to lower the flag that flies over your ship, not ready to obey God, trust him with your future and your security. If you're not careful, if you don't wise up, you will find yourself guilty as an accomplice in what we might call the Cain mutiny. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Or turn them on and scroll to Genesis 4. There are Bibles in the aisles, by the way, on tables, little tables. Uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, I'd encourage you to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible and would like to take one home, it's free to you. That's our gift to you. And you can say you pirated a Bible from a church. Genesis 4, beginning at verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. So this is the dawn of time, right? I mean, this is way back She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks. Picture this, he's a shepherd. Cain worked the soil. He was a gardener. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And notice this. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? 
But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, a lot of questions may arise from this passage, chief among them in regard to what we're talking about this morning is, why was it that God looked with favor on Abel and his offering and not on Cain and his offering? And some people, without a lot of thought, will give this as a first response that uh, everyone knows if they've read the law of Moses in the Old Testament that God loves a good barbecue, right? And so, obviously, it was because Abel brought an animal for sacrifice, but Cain did not. But, but that can't be the reason, and here's why. The sacrificial system hadn't even been established yet. That didn't come for hundreds of years later under Moses. No prescriptions have been given about what items are or are not acceptable as sacrifices to God. And even when the sacrificial system was finally established, plants and produce were very acceptable for some offerings. So it can't be that Abel brought a steak and Cain brought a salad to the potluck. It can't be that. So what we need to understand is that it wasn't a matter of what Cain offered, but rather when and how he offered it. When and how he offered it. And notice in verses 3 and 4, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So we ask, when did Cain bring his offering in the course of time. Apparently when it was convenient, when it seemed practical, after he'd taken care of his own priorities, when it was practical, with no sense of priority or urgency. And you compare that with Abel, and it says that he gave from the firstborn of his flock. From the firstborn of his flock, Abel gave to God first. So the question regarding how, how did Cain approach his offering, is answered in the word some. Cain brought some. He participated. He got a participation trophy. But Abel brought fat portions. And there's this sense that Cain brought some, but that Abel brought not only the first of his flocks, but he brought the first and the best of what he had. The first and the best. Now I said that no sacrificial system had yet been established, and yet Abel's sacrifice foreshadowed two features of the sacrificial system that came later under Moses. The first was what is referred to as the consecration of the firstborn. Exodus chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or animal. 
Abel's sacrifice also foreshadowed the commandment regarding first fruits. In Exodus 23, verse 19, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. But it's the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews who provides us with the essential insight into why it was that God had regard for Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. Notice this, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. There's still more for us to learn from Abel. By faith, by faith, by faith. See, God isn't into practical when it comes to our worship, what we choose to give to him. Giving God the first and the best will rarely, if ever, seem practical to any of us. Why not? Because practical doesn't require any faith. It doesn't require faith. It may require careful calculation. It may require careful thought, discernment, analysis. Nothing's wrong with any of that. But God is looking for faith. Practical depends on human wisdom and judgment. God's looking for men and women who will live according to his wisdom and submit themselves to his judgment. Abel was commended as a righteous man. Abel was justified by faith. Abel, by faith, not according to practicality, offered to God the first and the best of what God had given him. Now let's just jump out of that story to another biblical story. Imagine with me what might have happened on that most famous day of his life when David was facing Goliath in the valley of Elah. What if David had said, God, that dude's big. Check him out. So here's the deal. I'll take on Goliath when it's practical. I mean... All I have is this puny little sling, and well, I mean, look at him. He's, this guy's a monster. The guy's a, a killing machine. So I'm going to wait until more sophisticated weaponry is invented. If that's okay with you, God, it seems more practical to me. We'll see what we can do then. Well, here's another story. What if Daniel, you remember Daniel? Any of you read about Daniel in the Old Testament? What if Daniel said, Lord, I'll acknowledge you and submit to you if I ever get back to Israel. But you know, I'm in Babylon right now, surrounded by pagans that are a little bit hostile to faith in the God of Israel. So, so it's a little impractical in terms of getting established in a, a career in governmental service here if I take time or give up margin in order to hang out with a bunch of hungry lions. You get it, God? Know what I mean? Doesn't make much sense at all, does it? Would change the story dramatically. You can trust God with your obedience even when it seems impractical or inconvenient. Last night, because we were up in Federal Way 
Marcy and I drove by our first apartment, and everything in the neighborhood has changed, so we kind of took us a while to actually find it because all the markers were just, everything looked different. But we found it. And I was reminded of uh, those days when Marcy and I, you know, were newlyweds. And I had been sharing an apartment with a friend of mine, another single guy. And so when Marcy and I got married, he moved out. And um, I came home that first week from work, and Marcy had, like, totally turned over the whole house, you know. Where the drinking glasses were was now soup and canned beans and, you know, and everything was, I was like, where, I didn't know where anything was. A wife will turn your life upside down, you single men. Just know that. But there also came a day when she was looking at my checkbook ledger. We used those back then. And she asked me this question. Jim, I don't see any record of a tithe in this, in this ledger. And I said, that's not practical. I mean, I'm a youth pastor. Uh, I make dirt next to nothing, you know. Just poor, poverty-stricken. It's not practical. We can't do that. She said, We're, we will. <laughs> and from that day on, we have. And because of that, we've had to pay much closer attention to our finances than we might have. There's something about tithing, the impractical thing, the faith thing that drives you into the practical. It means that now you have to budget more carefully than others do. Uh, We've had to make some lifestyle choices because we acknowledged God's ownership. We've had to make certain sacrifices with regard to luxuries that we might otherwise have chosen. We've had to say no to our kids about some things that they wanted, some things that their friends had because we chose and keep on choosing to give at least 10% of our income to God. The choice to tithe has forced us into a number of other decisions along the way in order to maintain obedience. And we've never been rich from a monetary uh, perspective related to the regional economy. Certainly rich by world standards, wildly rich, rich, but, but we've never been that. You know what I'm talking about? And it's not that we haven't experienced some financial lean times along the way, but we are not today in debt. Uh, We own our home. And we're constantly reminded of whose we are. Our children were able to observe a mom and a dad who chose to put God first. And God has provided in ways that we never could have expected or even asked for. And we have peace Most of the time. I mean, we still have anxieties about our finances. We still have questions about where money's going to come from for little tiny things like retirement, (laughs) which is getting closer and closer every day. So it's still a day-by-day faith decision to honor God 39 years later. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, It is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 
He wrote to the church in Ephesus, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power, his power, that is at work within us. Turn, if you will, to Malachi, uh, the Italian prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament, so if you go about two-thirds into your Bible, stick your finger in there, you're going to be close. Right before Matthew, Malachi and Matthew. 400 years between them, but just a couple of pages in your Bible. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. Is that true? You sure? Okay. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That's good news. Notice what God was saying here. He says, if I were not who I am, and you were not my chosen people, the present circumstances in our relationship would result in your destruction. But because of my covenant with you, because of the promises that I have made to you, I will be patient with you. I'm a covenant-keeping God. Verse 7, ever since the time of your forefathers, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. And all God's people said, amen. I mean, that's us, right? We just keep turning away, all of us. Something needs to change, God says, and it's your move. It's your move. But you, you ask, how are we to return? Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. So now we know why there's relational distance between God and Israel. They, they've been robbing him. That, that creates a strain on relationships every time. In Malachi 3, God is talking to pirates. Someone asked me, hey, hey, what's up with this pirate thing? There aren't any pirates in the Bible. And I answered, well, blow me down, you scurvy dog. <laughs> the Bible is full of stories of pirates, common people who are uncommonly possessive of the possessions of others, always including God's. But you ask, how do we rob you? How do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Okay, so what's the whole tithe? (laughs) And what's the storehouse? The word tithe means a tenth, literally a tenth. 10%. For example, in Leviticus 27, God said, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. The entire tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. That phrase, holy to the Lord, means set apart for and unto the Lord. The word tithe or tithes is often used in connection with another word. That word is offerings. Tithes and offerings are two different things. You need to understand that. We often use them as interchangeable, but they're not. In the Bible, 
The tithe was understood was the understood minimum expectation of God's people that one-tenth of their increase, one-tenth of their uh, income belonged to the Lord. And if you actually study it, if you add in things like temple taxes and all those other things, it actually amounts more like to 30%. But the tithe itself was 10. Offerings were given over and above the tithe. They were not a part of the tithe. Offerings are over and above the 10%. And the tithe was given in Old Testament times for three major purposes. First, simply as an act of worship and obedience. Uh, That's what God asked. We'll talk about that in a moment. Second, it was given for the support of those who served in the temple, the priests. And third, it was given for the storehouse so that the temple could be maintained and the people could be fed in times of drought and famine. So let's continue on in Malachi. Verse 10. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. Test me in this. Would you say that with me? Test me in this. Again, test me in this. One more time. Test me in this. Do you know that this is the only time in the entire Bible that God invites us to test him? The only time. In fact, Deuteronomy 6.16 says, Do not test the Lord your God. Or if you prefer the King James for effect, Thou shalt not test, thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. Big time spiritual principle. Jesus quoted this to Satan when he was being tempted in the wilderness. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Big-time spiritual principle. Malachi 3, then, is a big-time exception to that principle. And now here's God's promise. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see, see, if it will not throw open, if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. The vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Floodgates opened. So much blessing that you'll not have room enough for it. Imagine that. Pests prevented from devouring your crops and vines that don't lose their fruit. I know that's an agrarian picture, and we don't all relate to that unless you're a gardener, but it's a picture of blessing. It's a picture of minimized frustration in life. Nations calling you blessed because yours will be, God says, a delightful land. See, the Hebrew word that's translated nations there is goyim. It, it, it just literally means people that don't know God. So is it possible? Is it possible? That the people in our communities, our neighbors, our co-workers who don't know Jesus might call LifePoint Church blessed if we brought the whole tithe into the storehouse and, and because as a result 
our church would be enabled to serve them, be a delight and a blessing to them. Why 10%? I don't know. Talk to God. Here's what I do know. The average American, not the average Christian yet here, the average American gives about 3% to charities every year. The average American gives to the United Way, Boys and Girls Clubs, other charities. What that ought to tell us is that giving 3% doesn't require any faith at all. But 10%, that in so many ways requires faith. Want to hear the scary statistic? The average American gives over 3% to charities every year. The average American Christian gives 2.2% to churches and charities every year, less than the general population. No wonder the church is in such drastic decline in America. We are living in disobedience. We haven't passed the blessed test. But wait, there's a better statistic. Evangelical Christians give more. (laughs) Who are the evangelicals? Evangelical Christians, as a subset of Christianity in general, believe that the Bible is the inspired and authoritative word of God, that salvation is by first personal faith in Jesus Christ alone, by his grace alone. Evangelical Christians are committed to reaching the entire world with the message of the gospel, hence the term evangelical. So evangelical Christians give more than the general population of Americans who identify themselves as Christians. Well, how much more? How much do we evangelicals give each year? About 3.3%. Just three-tenths of 1% more than the general unbelieving population and is spread out over churches and charities. Kind of disappointing, huh? See, God wants our first and our best from a heart of faith. And what we seem to be giving him is our leftovers. God asks us to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, which I take in in New Testament parallel to be the local church. And God wants our hearts where your treasure be, there be ye heart, ark. So which way lies your heart's true north? This morning when you came in, you, you found in each of the chairs a small linen bag containing three gold coins If you happen to sit on that, it's now a little bag with a brown smudge, which might have penetrated your clothing. Apologize for that. Go ahead and open that up, and in that bag, you're going to find three gold coins. By the way, in keeping with what we've been doing each week, these are edible. Do not eat the foil. (laughs) Um, Those... Three gold coins represent three priorities that I think are revealed in Scripture that every Christ follower ought to adopt. One is to give to the Lord first. The second is to save a predetermined percentage 
Save it. And third, live on the rest. Give, save, live. Faithful stewardship begins with giving to the Lord. It's okay to save. It's important to save. But giving comes first. Saving comes second. And then live on the rest. I think that's a formula for prosperity. Turn one page to the left in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, beginning with verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. Being the priests now, pastors. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? You placed defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table, not referring to communion table now, talking about the altar. By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. See, when we bring God our leftovers, when we just tip him instead of tithing, we're showing contempt for him. Continue on. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. Wow. Wow. Just shut the whole thing down. Your sacrifices are contemptible. They're useless. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. No offering. I will accept no offering. My name will be great among the nations. From the rising to the setting of the sun, in every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, The table, the altar of sacrifice, it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. What a burden this giving thing is. What a burden this sacrifice thing is. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals, when you bring your leftovers and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. There is no participation trophy for worship. God will not receive less than our first and our best. I am not the God of second place. I am not the God of secondhand sacrifices, of leftovers. I'm the God of first place. My name is to be reverenced. Test me, test me, test me in this. Give me your first and your best and see if I won't provide for you. I will not be the God 
of second place. Will you welcome Megan Casto? Megan, come on up. Megan is not a pirate. So, Megan, sometime back, you accepted the 90-day giving challenge and made some changes in your giving habits. What specific changes did you make? So um, I went back and found the message that I sent Pastor Jim in 2016, um, and it was a week or two after the first 90-day challenge because you had to I, think about it. I was struggling, yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't struggling because I wasn't already tithing. I was struggling because of the testing part. Um, so um, it feels completely wrong to test God for some benefit to myself. I realize that's not really what it is, but it feels like that. It seems off, like I'm only giving to increase. I'm go- only going to increase my giving because there's something in it for me. Um, and so I just said, I feel weird about testing God to see if he will give us more. And it was, <laughs> it was just a really strange thing for, for me and my husband. Because we started out kind of the same way where <laughs> I, I'm in charge of the finances. And so I said, okay, well, we're going to tithe. And he didn't like that because he makes his money and he works hard for it and it's his money. And over the last 15, 16 years, however long we've been married, he's slowly come on board and he sees how much we've been blessed from tithing. And those same verses that you had put on there are the ones he messaged me back. (laughs) So he's consistent. Um, And talked to my husband. And so instead of tithing on our gross income, no, our net income, (laughs) instead of tithing... After taxes, we started tithing before taxes, and that's a huge challenge when you look at how much tax, how many taxes come out of your paycheck. Um, but also in my business, I don't tithe after business expenses. I tithe on whatever is coming in to me from my company, um, and and then some plus Vision Next and and anything else. And the amount of blessings we've received is we've been able to bless others um, at the same time. And so it's been a huge gift. Tell us a little bit about the internal conversation that went on (laughs) in your heart and mind and your conversation with your husband. Yeah, it definitely was a challenge between me not... I'm I'm a little rebellious, I guess. A lot of rebellious. (laughs) Shh, shh, you shush. Um, (laughs) Casey knows me really well. Um, I don't like being told what to do. So if you tell me I have to do something, I'm immediately going to say, nope, I'm not going to do it. Um, And then on on just telling me I'm going to get, bribing me. I feel like I'm being bribed, right? If you do this, you'll get this. Well, I don't like that either because I want to do it because I want to do it, not because I'm going to get something from it or because, you know, there's some benefit to me. So I really struggled with that a lot. I mean, and I've been giving since I was, you know, three years old going to church with my grandparents. They'd give me quarters and, you know, I'd put it in the offering and stuff. So, I mean, giving is not for a foreign concept to me. It's it's just the why and the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard for me to talk about because I'm actually embarrassed by how much we've been blessed. Mm. So, you said the other day that being rich is not a sin. I don't consider us to be rich, but having money that is in excess of what you need 
feels very luxurious and that embarrasses me a lot. Mm. (laughs) And so I struggle with that. But I know that it's because he's blessed us to be able to bless others too and to be able to take care of our family. Would you say God's been faithful? (sighs) Yeah, just a bit. (laughs) Keeps his promises? Uh Uh-huh. More than, huh? Ridiculously. I mean, it's... We're not millionaires or anything, but I mean, like, we just feel beyond taken care of and blessed. And even when I stress, oh, my gosh, you know, business doesn't look as busy and it doesn't look like as much is going to come in. And then by the end of the week, I'm like, okay, okay, I get it. Don't worry. (laughs) Because it's always more than I expected. That's awesome. Thank you, Megan. Give her a hand. That's great stuff. God is faithful. God is faithful. And uh, you can trust him. It costs you something, right? It's supposed to cost us something. If it doesn't cost us anything, we can't say that it's offered in faith. It's just leftovers. It's just a tip and not a tithe. So God will not be the God of second place. So what is your heart's? true north he's the owner of all things what you think you own is really on loan one of the first things that he wants you to do is to give him a tithe of your income he wants the first and the best of everything that he entrusts to you and he wants this for you he wants you to experience the confidence that comes from knowing that you're doing what the owner would have you do with his treasure the peace and the freedom of having your financial house in order and and the joy of knowing that your finances are being invested for eternal outcomes. He wants you to give with a measure of faith. If 10% is easy for you, and for some of you it is, if it's merely practical, what would a faith-challenging, faith-stretching gift look like for you? Because here's the promise, overwhelming blessing. So some of you have asked questions like this. Are, are you just doing a series on church money because the church needs money? <laughs> and, and first, of course we do. <laughs> Ministry costs money. We live and we minister in, in the real world, in the real economy. But more than that, far more than that, from a pastoral perspective, our, our shepherding responsibility to you We want you to be free, and true freedom in life comes from obedience to God, from living under his authority. And it will rarely seem practical until your mind is trained by his word, and even then there will always be points of real testing. But God is always, always, always faithful. And you'll never regret trusting him. So here's some provisions we're making. Um... In your program this morning is the 90-day giving challenge. And it says there, trusting in God's faithfulness to his promises, I am choosing to increase my giving to God through LifePoint Church over the next 90 days to the percentage of my income indicated below. I'm taking LifePoint's leadership up on their commitment to refund 100% of the amount I have given with no questions asked if at the end of the 90 days I have not experienced God's blessing, whether financial or otherwise. And so we're asking you to consider increasing your giving by the amount that you choose. And here, here's, we'll go you even one more. If you don't want to give it here, 
where you attend every Sunday, where you're being spiritually fed and nurtured, give it to some other church. And if after 90 days uh, you don't feel God's blessed you, then we'll call them and ask them to give your money back. (laughs) The second provision is Financial Peace University. And that's beginning next week uh, at 1045, right down that hall. Chris Ross is leading it. Uh, We believe that everybody at LifePoint ought to take this course. A lot of us struggle financially. Many of us struggle with dumb debt, which is the debt you're in when you've bought things you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. But the truth is, you'll never be free as long as you're tied down with debt. You'll struggle to tithe. You'll struggle to give to anything you'd really like to as long as you're in debt. And the Bible is right when it says that the borrower is slave to the lender. So Financial Peace University will help you think biblically about your treasure, help you get out of debt, leverage your assets for eternity to to achieve real financial peace. And then finally, online giving. And uh, you can go to mylpclacy.com. Many of you don't write checks. We figured that out. So tithing your first fruits at the start of the month is a logistical hurdle, small hurdle, but a hurdle nevertheless. So we've taken the step to make it easier for you through online donations. You can give electronically. You can set up recurring payments. Sounds also practical, doesn't it? But here's the thing. You can make a commitment to regular proportional giving and then stick to it because you set up the recurring payments. That alone is an act of faith. You see, giving to God is the first step to financial freedom. So the questions each of us need to answer sound like this. Is God first in my life, or am I acting like a pirate? What is my heart's true north? What you think you own is really on loan. Lord, Lord, what would you have me do with your treasure? Let's pray. Lord, thank you today for your word. Thank you that it speaks down into the very core of our being, into places sometimes we'd rather it didn't speak. And yet, Lord, uh, we know that as we pull away, we experience increased bondage. And as we push in to your plan and your purpose for our finances, that we experience freedom. So, Lord, in knowing that, help us to act uh, in faith and obedience. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.